0: Welcome to Direction Correct, I'm podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Philip Arkin.
1: Thanks to our sponsors WorkLytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners WorkLytics. I have an interesting question for you. Oh and being being in this office made me think of it cuz there's this bust over here of right. a head that has a phrenology on it. So you remember like, they always use phrenology as the example of like, you know, bunk science that is not real, right? Testing criminal behavior by feeling (laughs) the bumps on your head, this sort of thing. Exactly. And it's like very detailed and everything and ornate. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I was thinking about it because at the time when they were doing it, they were like, this is is the best science (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And it was like, what is right now the equivalent to organizational phrenology that we're doing some of the stuff that we're doing is obviously bunk you know it's messed up like what 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 are we doing right now that 20 years or 100 years from now they'll be like (laughs) oh that they're reading the bumps on people's heads
0: it's the sort of things so you'd have to look for things that uh currently have uh that are a considered soft and b uh uh l- low validation
1: well like i was just thinking about it like there was this the whole replication crisis has been going on right and we've talked about it a few times mm-hmm. like if you really went to like the core of the replication crisis to me it seems like it's motivated reasoning so it's like beliefs oh yeah scientific practices that we want to be true and so we find ways of like skewing the data to make it become true when it really might not be and so I feel like all of the different, like, uh, let's call them fads, you know, like anything that's a fad is probably organizational phrenology is kind of my rule of thumb.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And you have a lot of these uh, sort of old wine, new bottle sort of things like, uh, do you remember like at PSYOP, there's a, like a clout was a big thing for one year, it's like 2013, oh, yeah. 2014, or uh not not that big data is phrenology by any means, but uh, you, like to your point, you get these sort of like fads that kind of come in and out.
1: See, and I actually like- take the opposite stance on that. If it's something that we rediscover over and over again, that's like multi-trait, multi-method, right? That's showing examples of the same validity over time, mm. right? Just from different methods that come into it. Now, a lot of it has to do with branding. And again, I would say somebody wants to get tenure, so they rediscover something that we've already known about for a long time under a different name. But in a way that to me, that's confirmatory evidence that it exists. It's usually something that's super novel that's never been found before that is more likely to be phrenology.
0: Yeah, I get that. Like you're you're definitely hitting on uh, or like the researchers hitting on something that has some sort of merit there. Uh, I guess you have to look at things that just come out of the blue. So like multiple intelligences or, you know, these like two spirit sort of uh, orientations to personality that's like, okay, I get this, it's like your personal experience,
1: but actually verify this with the data. Well, and that's why I go back to the, the motivated reasoning. People want yeah. something to be true. And so that they're, they're going to find a way to research it and say that it's true.
0: Well, I mean, even our uh, instruments to detect these sort of things are set up to find that information. Like, if you uh, have a proton collector at the uh, Antarctic, you're going to find protons from the sky, yeah. you know?
1: not not going to find any neutrons with that proton collector.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Phil, what's happening, man? Hey, guys, how's it going?
1: Are we doing Phil or are we doing Philip? What, what are we doing today?
2: Whatever tickles your fancy. I don't call know me... if you
1: want us to f- tickle your fancy <laughs> Phil uh,
2: or Phil. My closer friends call me Phil. Professionally people call me uh, Phil's good. Phil's good. Uh there let me just go. take take my blur off hold on. That's
1: delightful. Do I have too much uh had...
2: light back here? Cole it looks like you have a ton as well. So yeah,
1: we're like this isn't a podcast for people who look good, Philip. So okay. <laughs> you know, we're uh we're not we're not making, you know. A bunch of followers because we look good working out or something.
0: I I'm getting older and like my eyes are going blurry in a lot of occasions. So I'm glad you took the filter off. It's not me. Yeah, you don't know which it is.
1: <laughs> we were we were talking about uh Phil before you joined. What what do we think is the equivalent? Like there was a point in time where phrenology was considered a best in class science of reading like the bumps in people's heads and and the past of psychology. And what, and of course, obviously, that didn't stand the test of time. What is the equivalent today de- in today's science of what twenty years or a hundred years from now they'll say is phrenology? And uh, we were just kind of having some fun with that. So I thought you—I don't know—do you have any interesting thoughts on what you might think that might be?
2: I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is—is—is is, is, uh in the, in the ONA space, I mean, reading those charts So people, people kind of think <laughs> that they can kind of visualize those, you know, those network charts and then look at them and somehow glean. I, I think that's, that's been dispelled pretty quickly, but um, you still get people, you know, they're so attractive. I, know as, that. as
0: an ONA guy, you are spot on. Like I see this <laughs> over and over, especially if you get a chart more than more, more than a hundred nodes in it yeah i mean it's uh, impossible it's, to it's tell just reading it's tea on. leaves especially when like you apply uh various uh algorithms to it to you know uh force directed algorithms to place the nodes in various spots you can make it look like anything you want and tell people it looks like anything that's why you got to lean on the actual metrics the graph graph to
1: write metrics yeah. yeah
2: exactly what what other examples did you guys have outside of the people analytics space
1: Okay. I mean, the the one I was saying is any of the science that is based in motivated reasoning. So if somebody wants to um, find the conclusion because it, you know, is self-serving in some sort of way, all of that science it, it has already started to kind of be debunked with like the replication crisis. But um, I, I think anything that, you know, is not you don't find from. Multiple, yeah. You know, I, I used the example multi trait, multi method earlier. It's like if you're not finding the same thing from multiple different methods over time in a repeated fashion, it's probably not real.
2: That one's so tough to fix though, because that's you know, underlying incentives. You, you have to completely restructure the incentives. People are just following, people are just following, you know, where the incentive or where the money is. Or, oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. That, that's the replication crisis where you know, people pose a result get it published, and then these journals are less likely to publish a study that confirms it or denies it in the future. Yeah. That that just becomes the bit of evidence, you know, going forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there was a big nudging casualty that happened this week, uh, kind of along those lines. Some what does that professor. mean? Uh, no, it was like, I think it was one of these behavioral economists who had been uh, researching nudging I, again, I should probably have done more research on this if I'm going to share it publicly. <laughs> I think they had shown that they had been fabricating their data, and there were a Harvard researcher, and it's like, oh, this is a big, you know, hoo ha in the scientific enterprise
0: i mean there's so many choices that go into the research process that you know outside people don't understand i mean this is everything from like you know covid research to you know psychological research to you know kind of anything organizations etc you make so many choices in the process that you can essentially mold the data to say anything you wanted to say and come out with the outcome you know whether you're selection bias or you know uh non-randomized trials like all these sort of crazy things yeah yeah i mean just beyond that though anything that
2: involves people context is so important in the kind of workspace. What type of work were they doing? Were they, were they engineers? Were they project managers? Were they managers? Were they individual contributors? Were they like, and the results could be just totally different. So it's tough to like go to academic research and and pull out answers that you can apply in any situation in, in the real world at work because the context of your organization the structure the industry you're in everything is so you know can can change so much about those underlying oh, yeah. results and how they would apply in the
0: real world this is the foundation of what situational leadership right it's like essentially like throw up your hands and be like we well, don't know <laughs> well the, it really depends on all these sort of things but essentially just boils down to uh you know initiating structure and uh, don't be a jerk <laughs> when the whole
1: contingency theory and or organizational theory research is basically do different things in different situations. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's that's really helpful. Philip, let me introduce you really quickly, just so our audience knows who you are. So uh, Philip Arcole is the co-founder and CEO of Worklytics, a workplace insights platform that generates actionable insights from work data while protecting your employee privacy. Um, he has an extensive background in technology, focused on helping organizations design compelling employee and user experiences. He holds an honors degree in computer science and management from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Well, we've we've got a, a South African on the podcast. I guess I, I don't know. Are you a South African? What is what is kind of? I, I think you've moved around a little bit, Philip. Do you mind telling us a little about about that?
2: I, I don't know what to call myself. I was uh, my mother's Brazilian. I was born in Brazil. Lived earlier part of my life there and uh, and then went to South Africa, uh, went through school in South Africa to university there and then ended up in Europe, uh, worked in in London for a while, worked in Spain for a number of years um, and then uh, more recently came to the United States, lived in New York uh, and and now I live in in Washington, Seattle.
0: You're local. I didn't know that. Are you, are you a Stormers fan? Cape Town rugby? <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah. Uh, some pretty
2: specific knowledge there yes i am a stormers fan <laughs> thank you google
1: i, I love oh, right. you yeah. okay. i was like scott where are you pulling this from man
0: <laughs> no my, my, my knowledge of rugby is exceptionally limited but i do enjoy uh, rugby sevens despite the fact oh that yeah the yeah last, like 20 minutes
2: yeah no that's that's great i mean i i think at one point rugby was the fastest growing sport in the united states i don't know if it still is maybe it's changed to something else but I For think a time it's it pickleball.
1: I, I always hear it's pickleball oh, yeah. now. Is that, have either of you ever played pickleball?
2: <laughs> I have not, but I'm I'm dying to try.
1: So it's like a combination of ping pong and tennis mixed together. Is kind of what I gather. I've never played, but um, I'm a member at a club that has some pickleball courts, and I think that people like it because they they drink in one hand and they play <laughs> with their little ping pong <laughs> paddle in their other hand, and that sounds a lot like the United States, you know.
2: Well, I, I think the other advantage is it's a, a way more efficient use of space, right? You can turn. One tennis court into three yes. pickleball courts or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you're space constrained, which we are not in Texas, generally speaking, but yeah, I feel <laughs> you on that. Philip, do you mind telling us a little bit about Worklytics? So, what is it? What like like what what do you guys do? And 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 since you you know co-founded the company, why did you do that? <laughs> like what what was kind of your yeah. passion area that kind of made the genesis of the idea behind the company?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So so WorkLytics is a workplace insights platform. We help organizations get access to and analyze anonymized data from common work tools. So things like Office 365, email, calendar, OneDrive, Slack, all of the G Suite set of tools, uh, and then the long tail in, in things like GitHub and Jira and Salesforce. Uh, you name it. And we analyze data from those tools to understand what is the day-to-day life of, of an employee like, help improve employee experience, identify underlying drivers and things like employee well-being and, and potentially things that are driving burnout, understand collaborative networks. Uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit about OA today as well, looking at uh, how those networks influence outcomes in organizations, how they can be optimized, bottlenecks, etc., et, et how I got into this space is, I think, from a slightly different perspective. From most people, uh, I came at it, at it from from a management perspective. So, I was a, a, a manager in a startup that grew relatively quickly. Ended up leading a pretty big organization and a large team. The same for my, same for my co-founder, and then we were acquired by a massive telco, the AT and T of Europe, essentially, and had to deal with. The conflict, conflict of a smaller startup working or a relatively smaller startup working with this huge organization, all of these changes in dynamics, et cetera. And I was always frustrated uh, by the fact that as a leader, you have very little information and guidance on a lot of the kind of typical questions that come up. How should you structure your team? How large is the optimum team size? Is it better to have bigger teams, uh, bigger spans of control or really small teams? Uh, How often should you meet with with your team, bring everybody together, have regular ones, -ones, one-on-ones, etc. A lot of those decisions are made through intuition, essentially, Mm -hmm. a feeling about, you know, we spoke about this a little earlier, a feeling about the context, what's right, what might work right, with a little bit of guidance from what other people are doing. And there's very little data-driven insight into what you should do, what is the right answer for a particular configuration in this organization, and how do you get to more data-centric answers on those things? And so we, we started to think, and we, we had this intuition that there's all this data on how people work, how we get things done in the office, how we collaborate, sitting in all of these tools, but the data is all over the place, it's hard to get access to, it's kind of a mess. How do you bring it all together? Uh, how do you deal with things like uh, uh, employee privacy to make people feel like you're, you're working with the data in a way that they can they can trust uh, and deliver insights from all of it? And so that's essentially what we do at WorkLytics. We combine all of those uh, data points together and we build data sets for people analytics, for people's team people teams to answer typical people questions through uh, an, a better understanding of what work and collaboration looks like in their organizations.
0: That's amazing. It's, it's a heroic task to bring together all these data sets, especially when you're faced with like all the privacy issues, especially the new things coming up in, you know, California, Illinois, New York, obviously GDPR, this sort of thing. There's so many issues that companies are facing right now, you know, coming back to the office and like how to build teams. Like what what do you think or what, what do you hear from your clients is the biggest issue that they're facing and where they need the most help with their data analysis needs?
2: Yeah, good Good question. I think I can answer that question at two levels. So one is just getting access to the data. I think that can be very <laughs> difficult for yes. people analytics teams. You know, you, you laugh. So I feel, feel like you might've experienced this yourself. Had these uh, conversations you know, so before, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so in many cases, you're sitting within HR and the data is owned by completely different sets of teams. It's owned by IT yeah. and you need to navigate all of the internal politics and the... Uh, resourcing required, Uh, you need to navigate legal and privacy and compliance and uh, employee comms, etc. It is difficult to get access to this this type of data. So I think predominantly that's one of the main problems that we solve is we have a layer that automatically filters all PII out of the data uh, that sanitizes it, so we strip out all the content, we strip out any sensitive data, we aggregate it up to the group level. Uh, we have automatic, you know, connectors that automatically pull the data on a continual basis, so the IT team doesn't have to do a lot of work to integrate it. It just, just kind of works on the fly, and then we provide clean data sets of that type to uh, people science, people, people insights teams, so they can start to work with that data. So I think kind it of gets the, one of the main challenges is just how do you get oh, access yeah. to good, clean data of this type? And then beyond that, you know, what are the kind of typical problems that we work with companies to solve with this type of data? Well, that's evolved a lot over the past few years. As a, you know, you've talked a lot about on, on, on the podcast, you know, it used to be, how do we adapt to remote? We've had this, you know, su- sudden huge change. <laughs> Can we even function as a remote organization? And then, you know, we've been remote for a year. You know, are things still working? What are the impacts of being remote for so long? Then great resignation. What's driving that? You know, what are the underlying uh, underlying issues that we need to adopt here? Uh, and then organizations start to think about bringing people back to the office, to implementing Uh, return to office policies, getting everybody back, uh, or partially back in many cases, and struggling with some of the friction, uh, the friction around that. And and I think that we're we're kind of in the middle of that moment right now, a lot of organizations wanting to know, you know,
1: I I feel like one of the things I've really appreciated about your organization is you guys have published some amazing research on answering questions like this. You know, have you all looked at, you know, what what are some of the factors that are playing into this? And and would you like to share any of that research?
2: Good question. Yeah. So, I mean, we've had a front seat into all of these major events over the last couple of years. It's been a fascinating time to be in this space, see see all of the major changes. Um, Right now, in return to office, uh, you know, dealing with a, a, a lot of organizations thinking about a... How do they create return to office programs that are attractive for employees? I think in-office density is a challenge. People, many organizations, are struggling to get as many people as they want back into the office as frequently as they want, or to define what the right policy is. So, should we have uh, uh, anchor days and get everybody back on the same day? Should we allow teams to decide for themselves? Uh, Should we have some kind of Uh, uh, you know, 50% time in the office Some kind of lower bound on on, on what that time is. Um, And then, you know, how do we create a great environment that uh, allows people to, and great policies that allow people to feel like they're using their time well when they're in the office uh, and do the types of work that are better to do in person when they're in the office and then focus on things that are uh, better to do at home uh, when you are in a space where you can kind of be heads down and, and and focus more so just you know a lot of change dealing with that change and applying data to try to answer what the right policies and guidance are for each of these different scenarios to help remove that friction and uh, and get organizations functioning as well as possible through all of this this change as they adapt
0: well, what, do, what do you think are the I don't know levers that organizations can pull to make people, want to come back to the office? I have my own thoughts on how we could do this. But I mean, obviously, like every organization is different, like you have different circumstances. But what are the common themes that you are seeing in the data or from, from your clients that uh, can help, you know, encourage people to come back to the office?
2: Yeah, good good question. So, so the one thing that we've seen is peer density when in the office. So yep. what, what we look at is uh, your close network, who are the people that you work with, on a daily basis on a week on a weekly basis and those might not be people in your team they might be people in other parts of the org on a particular project other leaders etc peer collaborator density when you're in the office is quite critical and the yes. reality is that it tends to be quite low a lot of seating plans in the office are designed around HR structure. So you're put together with other people that you know, are kind of in your same function. And if you, have, if you have a cross-functional project, the people you work with are in other parts of the office or uh, on other floors or in, in, in other places. And then there's been a lot of kind of people moving out of cities during the pandemic because of you know the high cost of living in cities. People thought it'd be better to... Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and so that leads to even less density in the office, you have you know teammates that are uh, hybrid that come in, uh, that come in less often. And so what we've seen from a data perspective, we looked at badge data, and combined that with network data. And in the typical organization we've looked at so far, we find that when people come into the office, they're only ever in the same space as around 20 to 30% of their peers. So it's a kind of a small number of your oh, closest yeah. peers are around you in the office. And we looked at the impact that that has on people's perception of hybrid work, of these ways of work. And the lower your peer density is, the more you feel like coming into the office is a waste of time. It's kind of self-evident, but if you're <laughs> going to go through a one-hour commute and nobody you work with is there, uh, you're working with all these people that are all, all, in all of these other spaces uh, or on different floors, et cetera, and uh, it's frustrating because you feel like you're you know, losing efficiency and you're not gaining much value from from that time. So, oh, with that okay. in mind, you know how can you better design spaces? How can you design teams? How can you restructure around those challenges? How can you build better tooling to you know create that density when people are in and allow for people to work well when they're more distributed?
0: This is an absolutely fascinating uh, topic area that, like, I, I just love the. Uh think about quite often because I do believe that there is a tipping point like if you can get a certain number of your peers around you to come the office you are more likely to come in yourself and it's not Rocket science, really, it's it's social cohesion, it is uh homophily, it is just social norms and culture that we come in the office and we all deal with each other. But uh, Philip, like there's like another like line of uh research that uh, called space syntax that I don't know if you guys incorporate in your tools, but essentially they find like crazy things like if uh you are more than 50 to 60 feet away from somebody. The odds of you interacting drop to almost zero you might as well not even be in the same planet uh so you need to like actually get people together in such a way that they were more likely to run into each other and or you know either pass each other in the way to the bathroom or just interact from a productivity standpoint from an innovation standpoint all these great things that we can explore
1: well scott i, I had a question for you because you said when you asked Philip the question uh you said you had some ideas for getting people to come back. Was there any ideas that, you know, Philip didn't share from their research that you have seen from, you know, things that you've seen out in the research yourself?
0: Well, I mean, essentially it's just that the, the tipping point idea that, you know, you have a certain number of folks uh, on your team or you make it worthwhile for people to come in. Right. And you develop a culture from that. That just becomes the norm the same way. If you had uh okay uh january 1st uh i'm gonna start a new gym uh regimen i'm gonna go to the gym every day and after a week most people kind of peter out unfortunately this sort of thing but what you need is a gym buddy somebody that's relying on you to show up at the gym yourself right and that makes it far more likely to get your ass out of bed and go to the gym right? if someone's would, gonna be would you waiting call that
1: years. would you call that an accountability buddy is that, is
0: that what we're talking about here? That's the craziest term ever, but
2: yeah, sure. I'm, I'm game for it. Actually, I have a good kind of <laughs> practical example that we've seen a couple of customers experiment with at the moment, which is designing uh, seeding plans using the network data. So instead of seeding network clusters it. together, uh, is, 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 instead of uh, creating seeding clusters around uh, HR data, can you look at closed peer networks and try to create those clusters in the office, put them in the same corner of the office, on the same floor, or even in the same kind of island of desks? It sounded like maybe you've done some of that before.
0: There's some like really good, uh, excellent research, largely from the uh, economist world, essentially shows these natural experiments of, say, like a a university has like an asbestos problem and they'll take uh, people from various, you know, professors from different departments and like throw them into a common space because, you know, circumstances dictate it and their odds of publishing research and uh, groundbreaking research. is is like 20 times better that's a fake number pulled out of the air but much much greater than you would be expected if they had to walk across uh the uh, quad as it were so you could do the same thing in an organization either put teams that should be collaborating next to each other or teams you wouldn't expect to collaborate next to each other but you know maybe some good magic will happen there
2: yeah i think that's great i think that that that's spot on i mean it makes me You know, the one the one thing I think of in all of that, though, is, you know, what happens to the people who are who are more remote, who do who who will struggle to kind of come in more and and, and connect more? They're at greater risk of isolation. So I think that's the sort of of flip side of the problem is how do you make sure that they don't become second class citizens when you have people who are closer to these hubs and can come in and create more of that cohesion over time? Uh, You know, you need to have the tooling and the process to proactively bring those people into the fold. What about
1: the what about the people like me, Philip, who just don't want to collaborate, right? Like I, I just want <laughs> to be I just want to be a hermit and not work with anybody else. Is, is there anything that your organization does that can help me to want to collaborate with others?
2: <laughs> Good question. I, I, I you know, I think there's only so much you could do there, but you know, for, for one, uh <laughs> p- perhaps showing the showing the value of collaborating. You know the, some of the re- results you see from having a uh, better collaborative networks. so a simple example there is promoter promotability like the the odds that you're going to rise in an organization if if you're ambitious at all about doing that you know having the right networks having senior networks etc etc uh, can be a strong predictor <laughs> of that so um, you know if you're happy if you're happy not not doing that then then maybe you're happy um not creating those networks you know to, to our point earlier it's it's very context context specific there are roles that need large amount of time uh, yes. fo- focused time uninterrupted time to get things done any any kind of uh, data science deep thinking engineering creative writing strategy roles etc they often feel like they do better when they are more isolated and less connected from the rest of the organization, when they can just be heads down for several hours and several days and focus, you know, I, I collaboration can get in the way of that. So it's, it's not that, you know, all, all modes are, are right. Is the
0: cold doesn't play well with others Sometimes I think that's,
1: you know, there there, there's value in all of us, Scott, (laughs) each of us. It's a, own... it's a
0: spectrum, and we, we, we all bring our own diverse perspectives. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and... <laughs> That's the beauty of what's going on It is on the here. beauty.
1: Well, Philip, I think you, didn't you have a question for us about, like, people analytics and IO psychology?
2: You're probably among the right people to answer, you know, what are the main things that create differences between those two groups? And in particular, was uh, recently listening to a discussion about where people analytics should sit. In the organization, should it be part of human resources um, or should it be part of a core BI team or IT or uh, in some cases even we've seen it sit under finance, etc. What are the trade offs there and my understanding is that in the IO field, there's a strong belief that it should be within HR and the people team. Uh, and then there there, 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 are people who have very strong feelings about it being outside of HR, being more closely tied to core operations of the business. What, what are those trade-offs, and do, you, do
0: you have a sense of what that divide is? I think this is more of a call sort of question. It's not really where my <laughs> mind goes.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think you, you get the result you should expect. So if you position, you know, people analytics to be more in in integrated with the business, you're going to get more business focused outcomes if you position it within an HR function. Lo and behold, you get more HR focused outcomes and perhaps less business focused. Um, I I think, though, to your question about, you know, like, what role does IO psychology play? And how is it related to people analytics? I, I posed the question a while back on LinkedIn is like, who owns people analytics? Like, and is it the IO psychologist? Is it you know, other folks like the business intelligence folks, and that created a, quite a controversy <laughs> amongst <laughs> different folks. I, I think the way that that I kind of look at, it, and Scott, I'd love to get your perspective as an IO as well. Is IO came first? I mean, it, it's existed for over a hundred years, and so, uh, and a lot of the foundational research in this space was conducted by IO psychologists. But that said, I mean, I don't have data on this, but I I, I suspect that IO psychologists only make up like a third of the people analytics field and so you can't say you know you own something or you are something when you only represent a minority uh stake in the field and so there's a lot of other diverse viewpoints that i think should be and uh, rightfully considered. one of my favorites personally and i think our field would be lesser than if we didn't have it is the economist view i i've taken yeah. a lot of wisdom from economists over the years but obviously there's the data scientists the data engineers the developers, the BI folks, you know, the and all of a bunch of other kind of social and humanities-based disciplines. You know, I've even seen the anthropologist here, the organizational sociologist and you know, maybe even an organizational phrenologist that we were talking about earlier, the, the here and there. But I, I don't know, what, what's your perspective, Scott?
0: I think you're absolutely right about the uh, complementary perspectives to go back to, you know, Cole doesn't play well with others in the network, a kid, of course, uh, as well as the influx of behavioral scientists and, you know, all these other folks. Uh, it, it's funny you ask this, like my, my thoughts on what people analytics and what I.O is has changed or um, I've just given more thought as we've done this podcast. Like I used to think of them as largely synonymous. I've come to think of IO as a little bit more of the uh, prediction mechanism while there's a large swath of people analytics around, you know, dashboarding or providing insights to leaders in kind of a uh, passive way that they can use. But overall, I, don't, I think it's just semantics and we're all here to make the organization better, make people better at what they do, and make everyone happier. Uh, I don't think people analytics or IO should sit in finance. That doesn't feel right. <laughs> but uh, overall, uh, or and once again, organizations should position this uh, unit or you know these people in a place where they can make the most impact for the good of the organization. I think that's based on their context, et cetera.
1: Well, I mean, I I guess I'll ask you this, Philip, just by nature of the organization you work for. I'm sure sometimes you work with HR functions and and sometimes you work with non-HR functions. Do you notice a difference in the kind of the quality of outcomes or the type of research questions that are being asked or the type of way that your company is being asked to kind of stretch its product in one way or another? Uh, Do you find those questions to be qualitatively different when you work with different types of functions?
2: Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I mean, we really do straddle the people team and 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 operations and the, the rest of the business. I mean, really, work work data in many senses is operational data. How are things getting done, et cetera? And we've definitely seen more of a move. And I'm sure you've noted that of HR into operations. You know, previously, uh, I don't know that HR would have opined on. How much time the organization should be, you know, what's the optimal time to spend in meetings, and what do you do about really large meetings, and all of those types of questions start to get more into uh, operations and questions that a CTO or a CIO or or other types of those teams would answer. So, you know, we we definitely see uh, people coming more from the business side asking more of those types of questions, and we definitely see people from the uh, the more kind of HR, people analytics, uh, or I/O space. Uh, asking more of the types of questions, you know how how can this data be applied to answer questions particular to people problems? so specifically to burnout and uh, well-being and retention and you know typical people questions. So there is quite a lot of variance, but I would say that the whole space is moving more in the direction of of work data.
1: I mean, that's why I take I uh, said this before on the podcast. I take such an expansive definition of what constitutes people analytics, as I say, you know, The business has a variety of problems, but if you had to slice up the pie of all their problems and just take the slice that had to deal with people or their employees or maybe even their customers in certain um, circumstances, that's where we play, right? And that's and and that cuts very much outside of the HR function many times. And that's why I think oftentimes if People Linux does sit in an HR function, it has to be a more of a boundary spanner than many other HR functions need to be other than maybe like the HR business partners themselves. Philip, would you like to do a little confusion matrix with us? Let's do it. And might I just add to what Cole
0: just said there before we get into this, like that's the beauty of network analysis where, you know, if you're dealing with people or communication in an organization, it applies to almost everything. Okay. We got five questions for you, Philip. You ready? Go right. shoot. Okay. At a restaurant, would you let someone else order for you and you'd be okay with that? I,
2: I, I love that. Actually, oh. I love to, I love to kind of experience somebody else's world and let them guide me.
1: Fascinating. Cole? What about you? It's a fun experiment to do. I, I did this back when I when it was on the dating market is have you go on a date with someone and have each other order for the other person. <laughs> it sounds that That is a fascinating <laughs> experiment to run because it drives some people crazy, but other people, you know, so you learn a lot about them as a human being. It's like, <laughs> hey, can they deal with this type of ambiguity?
0: Uh, I'll just put yeah, myself as a as a no there.
1: <laughs> Hard no. I mean, as long, as long as like as long as they're not trying to
2: game you right and order the yes. worst thing on the menu. Like as long as they would they're ordering something that they would order for themselves. <laughs>
0: I I have staples, so the people closest to me, I could just like walk away to the bathroom, and be like or you know what I like, get one of these five things, and we're gonna be all good. But yeah. you know, if you're like uh, adding like extra mayo or things to. Whatever, like no, thank
1: you. I'm going to order Scott a hamburger with. Yeah, can you put like half a jar of mayo in this?
0: <laughs> well, if you order like light mayo, they give you like extra mayo. That's what it gets recoded to in the chef's brain. <laughs> Philip, are you intrigued by baseball statistics? Well, we'll say rugby yeah. statistics. We'll we'll make it more pertinent for you.
2: Well, no, I, I am intrigued by baseball statistics. Uh, you know, and and the history there. I think it's I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's interesting that it's almost the, the point of baseball for many people is all of the statistics. Oh yeah, rather than Rather than almost watching the game itself, uh, I think that's pretty. That's pretty interesting. You you don't see that to the same extent in games like cricket or in games like rugby. But as they become a little more Americanized, a little bit more popular in the US, uh, you're starting to see those those types of things creep in a bit more, and you know you you, you see people be more more interested in them. I I think it's pretty uh, it's pretty fascinating, but not something I've know I- a lot about to be
1: honest. I'm personally offended by the last statement because I am a big rugby statistics fan. <laughs> and the fact that you would besmirch my rugby passions <laughs> is just, you know, I can't, I can't deal with this, Philip. Sorry
0: about that. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of touch statistics over there, Cole. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm at the end of my. <laughs> Baseball in itself is like a, a fascinating sport. It's, it's like an individual sport in a team concept But it is all metrics driven. I'd I'd love to, it's it's on my list, way down the list, but like delve into Saber metrics and how they can be applied in the organization. Philip, are you comfortable with small talk? Not a
2: huge fan, but I've I've grown to be more comfortable over time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. How is the weather in Seattle?
2: I probably am someone who kind of defers to deeper talk
0: too quickly with
2: people sometimes
0: (laughs) (laughs) rather than small talk. Uh, and by the way, both Philip and I can attest that the weather in Seattle right now is just about the perfect season. Where we're it's entering been it. phenomenal. Yeah. 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 Philip, can you turn down a meeting without a problem? Uh,
2: oh yeah. 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 I, I, I find I have to, you know, uh, running a company and as we've grown and we're partly remote and distributed as well, you just, you know, I, I need time to think, I need time to think about strategy, to write things, et cetera. And sometimes I just have to turn turn meetings down and I'm I'm trying to more proactively do that continuously, and that's often the advice that we give customers: is to yeah. guide employees on how to have more control over their own time, their own calendars, and feel okay with saying no to meetings. This is
0: what uh, Rob Cross talks about, you know, retaking your day and collaborative overload.
1: Oh my gosh! Yeah. I feel like I could go on a rant about this because I'm in such a different camp than you guys, where like you. I feel like it it's it's almost the same premise as people who show up like 5 or 10 minutes late for every meeting. Like it's just disrespectful. I know Rob would say, you know, you're taking back your life, but you're taking away from other people's lives, right? You're like one person's life is being prioritized over 10 other people's lives and that just drives me nuts sometimes. It's so like Like people, you you set something up like two weeks in advance. You do all the right things, and they're like, "Oh, sorry, I I need to cancel. Something last second came up." It's like I know you're fucking lying. Like, shut up. (laughs) Like, go to the damn meeting.
2: I think that's a little distinct, and that that is a problem. I mean, obviously, you're talking a little bit there around just being courteous and warning people ahead of time that you can't make it. But I do think some organizations as well, uh, and we see this from a data perspective, particularly leaders. Will randomly show it show up at meetings and not in some cases. And when do, when you're relying on them to show up to make decisions, and they don't show up, then the meeting has to be rescheduled a week out. Yeah. Uh, and then it's hard to get their time. And you can get into this dynamic where you're kind of uh, delaying decisions in companies by weeks because you can't get a hold of the right people because they're so busy and and in and out of these meetings. So I think there you're right that there is the the the, the bad side of that. The, the the flip side is I would tell you in most cases that to, you, you know, put it in a doc, send me a, write up what you want to ask me in a doc or in an email and send it to me and let's deal with this asynchronously. I think, you know, that's not always possible, but when
0: it is, that's uh, often the better solution. You know, Cole, one thing we've never really got into is like meeting hygiene behaviors. There's a whole line of research yeah. on this sort of stuff, just like agendas and setting this sort of stuff up. And I, th- I think you're right. If you're canceling the meeting five minutes before it starts, that's that's BS because everyone is mentally prepared for it. And this sort of thing, if uh, you, it's put on your calendar, you say like, no, I, I like two weeks in advance. I don't think that that's an issue. But Philip also raises a great point that if you have if you have ten people in a meeting, how productive is that? A and there's other companies that have the culture of like well we got to invite bob and sue but bob can't make it so we got to push it out two weeks and then uh sue uh she's out on vacation so now the meeting's a month in the future and you get them both in the room and neither one says a fucking thing like why did we ever have this meeting in the first place anyway other than that i have no thoughts
1: yeah it's like i think i think what scott and i are saying is we have a lot of unprocessed emotions about this topic that we need to probably talk to someone about not i
2: mean i mean meetings are everything i mean it's they're most of work they're most of how we spend time at work and most of the relationships most of the dynamics so it's right that that it is a contentious point
1: absolutely well you guys Uh, ready for some nerdery here we
0: got one more question one more quick one philip do you panic when you lose something
2: uh you, you mean when i lose my wallet or my phone yeah yeah yeah
0: just uh lose an article no i don't I no it. i
2: try not to hold on to physical possessions to to to, to that degree I, I i in general i don't I, if, if i'm about to take an international flight and i can't find my passport maybe that's that's an exception <laughs> where i would panic um a bit of a nervous flyer but i don't worry that much about losing physical possess- possessions i think i think my spirit
0: animal definitely
1: (laughs) yeah while you guys are not focused on physical possessions i'm getting into my house because i remembered my keys so you know i think there is value in uh (laughs) being very mindful of these type of topics
0: you want to push it to uh the nerdery
1: let's do some nerdery you want to do some grand theft auto sure sure okay this is fascinating this is fascinating
0: so there is a a original study by Marky, Marky, Marky and Fetch in 2014, essentially a uh, median lawmaker make- suggests that there's a link between vi- violent video games and violent crime. We've all kind of heard this sort of thing before. They did a time series analysis and essentially showed that there's no link or even a decrease in uh, the relationship between playing video games and violent behavior. Uh, but it's correlational and uh, there's generalizability issues, issues, etc. Uh, There's also a follow-up study, uh, 2017, uh, I forget the name, Beer Gardener or something like that, I don't have it in front of me. But essentially, uh, the release of Grand Theft Auto is related to a decrease in criminal activity from males age 12 to 25. So they control for other covariates and this sort of thing, but uh, essentially all these teenagers, uh, they're they're not uh, playing... doing criminal behaviors because they're playing the game.
1: <laughs> yeah. They're, they're living vicariously through their video game actors. So instead of busting a car window, they just, you know, bust a car window digitally. <laughs> Sublimate and, uh, the urge. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting, it's satiating the need.
2: Yeah. I I, I think it's fascinating. I do wonder if they're, they're, they're underlying that as a more nefarious mechanism, which which I, I'm a gamer myself, actually. And I, I I like games like like that. I play I play games uh a lot, especially when I was w- was younger. So I don't believe that they, at least for me, never drove me to be violent. The but more tell us more potential-
1: about this nefarious mechanism. I mean, what is this <laughs> this deep dark secret you have, Philip, that you well, want to no, share so on a podcast? What I
2: what I worry about more is that gaming at the extreme can be a little bit like it could be a it could be an addiction a little bit like a drug addiction and can sap you oh, of yeah. your ambition and you know and your need to get out there and do things and and and, and succeed in life because you feel like you're succeeding in the game you're getting wow. things done you're achieving things that that's enough of a sense of fulfillment uh, and i think that's a big potentially a big problem in 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 society underlying this and may be a driver I think that's that's
0: very true. It's an escape, but it's like the land of the lotus eaters. Like you can have so much and it's good, but if you have too much, it's just uh uh have obviously detrimental effects. The same with anything, everything in moderation, but there is some good in like this cathartic release, right? Like so when people go to these rooms where they break things, you know.
1: Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's sapping their ambition to steal cars. You know, like (laughs) they wanted to, you know, create a criminal enterprise and now their ambition was thwarted by the video game.
0: See, I think, I think Cole is very, Cole is very like task focused too. I think he would love video games. I don't think he's into it. He can, he can speak for himself, but I think he would love like the missions and like going down like the to-do list.
1: Yeah, I can't, I can't do it, and um, and it's because like, so I got super into Halo for a while. Ah, yeah, Um, back in the day. I again, the dopamine hits from these games, they just like reprogram my brain. So I, I I have to go like cold turkey. Can't do it. Got to, can't play these games. Not allowed. It's a a personal prohibition of mine.
0: The, The the story also reminds me of like these stories that like you see a decrease in crime on Mother's Day. Uh, you know, just like everyone's actually with their family and not out breaking into cars or whatever. And apparently, this happens in Dallas as well on uh, Cowboy Sundays, where the cops will just go to the fire station and because there's there's nothing going on. Everyone's at home watching football.
1: <laughs> Dallas Cowboys are saving the the world once you know <laughs> Sunday football game at a time. <laughs> well, um, I I've got one that I I thought was pretty interesting was about. Um, And this came out from the MIT Technology Review, and it said the people paid to train AI are outsourcing their work to dot, 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 AI, (laughs) which I I thought this was comical on one level and really problematic at a deeper level in the sense it's comical that that they were using um, Mechanical Turk, which we've talked about a few times on the podcast um, and these scientists did a study that estimated that somewhere between 33% and 46% of the workers that are used to train these AI models, specifically OpenAI's ChatGPT, are actually using AI to solve the you know AI problems. Meaning that there's this circular loop of information. Yeah. and actually went into chat GPT because I, I was like, what there's got to be a name for this And they called it uh, I believe circular um, a algorithmic bias. So essentially, you're creating, you know, um, have you ever heard the expression turtles all the way down? You're creating turtles all the way down of AI, training AI, training AI, training AI. And therefore, it's like there is no ground truth. And I think this is going to become a much larger problem with these AI models as time goes forward.
0: I mean, this is why we got to get it right now. I mean, I think Elon Musk and some other leaders were concerned, not necessarily about this specific issue, but the fact that like we're at the, you know, the base development right now, it sets the foundation for everything in the future. And to your point, yeah, it's, it's cascading problems. So uh, the model is trained on circular data, in which people, you know, use that data, lead to bad insights, which lead to more bad data going into the model, et cetera. It's, it's it's clearly a problem, and I don't I don't know how we solve it because people are incentivized <laughs> to do the work yeah. as quickly as possible. Yeah, well, I, mean, I the, actually the...
1: think it's going to get worse because, yeah. um, I don't know if you guys have seen this push to try to use simulated data to try to train the model. So you're not even gonna use real data anymore. We're gonna simulate real data and that's gonna be the whole basis of these models. And I, I think I cut you off there, Philip, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, uh, no, that's an interesting point about simulated data. I, I think there are, they, are, they are working on mechanisms to solve some of those issues uh, that, that, that you mentioned there. But it, it reminded me of uh, the other place where, where we see that dynamic is in SEO, search engine optimization. You know, if you're a business like ours, you're trying to drive traffic to your marketing website. Some of what gets uh, you up in the in the rankings in Google search is constantly posting articles on relevant topics. Yeah. And so, obviously, this is a temptation for all these businesses, whether nefarious or not, to generate hundreds or thousands of articles using these generative models to uh, to to kind of game SEO. And then these models are scraping. Scraping the web and pulling that data back in. I think that's, uh, you know, another example that is incredibly pervasive and getting worse. worse.
0: Would you call it circular what, Cole?
1: Circular algorithmic bias. Yeah, it was a new term for me as well, but... The good news is to the SEO problems is AI is going to get rid of all the search engines anyway. So you're not even going to have to try to move up the <laughs> rankings anymore. Perhaps.
2: <laughs> I mean, the, the comical thing about it to me is that AI was supposed to take over menial tasks and there is, you know, there's nothing more menial than having to go on mechanical Turk and, and provide feedback to these models. And so, you know, it is, it is kind of, automating a, a menial feedback job in a way <laughs> maybe we really are all
1: it. menial that's what i'm yeah. starting to realize to <laughs> this it's like ah, i'm very i'm pretty menial Ugh, this is terrible <laughs> i mean th-
0: this like this also reminds me of like the issues that were dealt with in like selection development where like if you have a uh sample that doesn't quite meet your needs you clone specific cases and therefore like you sort of like bias your sample that way uh, so I mean it's like not necessarily something we haven't dealt with, but just not on this scale and as rapidly as everything is developing.
1: I don't know, really. Scott. Do you want to go to our last topic?
0: Uh yeah. Here I, I got we, we got a little bit of time here. I'll go like for one other thing based on AI, just because it's top of mind. Okay. Uh yeah. yeah, I was I was traveling back from the airport at six a.m. You know, not to the airport, but back from the airport, which is not a way Did you want to live your life. No, no, I dropped somebody off. I was a mensch and like helped them out Ooh. and like they told me like hey i got a flight friday morning you you dropped me off like
1: friday morning no big deal i didn't know it was (laughs) freaking
0: four in the morning well i I got a
1: rapid fire question about this guy is are you a better friend if you drop someone off at the airport at 5 a.m or if if you help them move which one of those is more of a better friend
0: oh they, they come with their own set of pain don't
2: they The picking up from the airport depends on the city. I would say it's yeah, that's true. Not as bad. I mean, four o'clock in the morning is rough, but the airport's not that far here in Seattle. It could
0: be, it could be L.A. for example. That would be. (laughs) If you're asking friends to help you move after the age of like thirty-two, like you're you're just a bad person. (laughs) That's that's not good. That's a group
1: of men who are all over the age of (laughs) Uh, thirty-two. Well, so so. Is there an age limit on uh, driving to the airport? Like if you're asking someone to drive you to the airport over the age of 32, are you still a jerk?
0: No, I don't. I'd have to think about it. He He, hesitated. There's some yes
1: there. There's a little yes.
0: The fact that the Ubers are so so expensive in Seattle, I understand. Like in other cities, Ubers are not nearly as expensive as they are here.
1: Yeah, but he already said the airport's closer too. So does the closeness of the airport diminish the, the more expensive Uber?
0: I mean, the expensive Uber, it's like $140 to get to the airport. For, I now, guess it depends where in Seattle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it, it's wildly expensive. Anyway, here, full circle, back to it. I'm driving back from the airport, and I was complaining about getting up so early, clearly. But anyway, I was listening to NPR, and there's a teacher on there, and he's essentially a professor. He's essentially, you know, worried about, you know, uh, students turning in papers, you know, AI-generated content, this sort of stuff. And uh, he said, well, let's just turn it to assignment. I want the students to write a paper using chat GBT. They cannot write anything manually. And he turned it to an assignment. So their task was then to critique what was written there, identify flaws in the argument, and where uh, specific hallucinations may have occurred. I thought that was a really fascinating way to kind of like reverse the trend on students.
1: I feel like it's like where you do something wrong and then they force you to do more of it. (laughs) Like, um, (laughs) like, like, I don't know, this, this may be totally random, but like, I remember when I was younger, like if somebody would like get caught drinking in high school and then their parents would make them drink (laughs) so much that they never wanted to drink again. Like it's like it sounds like it's like that. It's like punishment.
2: I I think it's awesome.
1: It it it
0: increases uh, critical thinking. I think think that's the whole goal. That's all goal. Yeah, yeah. School anyway. It's like, uh, you know, think through problems and this sort of thing. But if we're going to be in a world faced with a journey of AI, you need to be able to spot the flaws in the argument that's produced even automatically. Yeah, I think, I think that's awesome. It's a more and more of an important skill, you
2: know, not just processing information from AI, but from, from people as well. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the media and the information out there, there is so much bias and things uh, uh, in, in, in papers and in articles, having the ability to process that, identify the issues, identify the flaws, how you'd improve it, et cetera, I think is uh, a critical skill.
0: Especially if you have this circular information bias.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. When I think about this too, and this, I know this kind of goes into the sort of out there territory, which we usually don't get into too much on the podcast. But I'm wondering, like the more I think about it, the more you interact with an AI and you get it to do basically everything you need to do on your job, the more you are, you're training the AI to replace you. And so there was this period of time where you know, AI was being used in chess and the best teams in the world were AIs combined with human beings. And then the AI got so good that it just like crushed <laughs> everyone and everything. Are we like speeding up that adoption of AI to like completely make us, you know, uh, menial Like we were saying earlier, you know, we said all the things that we're doing are menial tasks. Are by getting students to do this, are we basically training the AIs to be better than humans faster?
0: Well, I, I think we're at like a sweet spot right now where the AI isn't that good that it can't be fooled. But I think that <laughs> we're not far away from it being really good. Like we we were just starting to talk about AI, what like nine months ago. I think yes, absolutely. I think that that's
2: the way that's the way that a lot of these models are going to improve and fine-tune is through through constant human feedback. And at work work is a great example, understanding the context of what you're doing in your business, et cetera, all of that's only going to be fed in through constant feedback to optimize those models to that case. So uh, I think you're, you're spot on whether that's unfortunate or or fortunate.
0: Unfortunately, there are some jobs that are uh, more exposed to AI than others. Uh, We got this article, I I found it, uh, I think David Green retweeted, who's just the probably the preeminent uh, people analytics aggregator out there. But essentially, uh, you know, AI integration is becoming more common in the workplace or, you know, essentially will be, you know, pretty soon. And uh, Ben Zweig examined uh, the gender and ethnic Uh, distributions among those AI exposed jobs, I think like payroll, bookkeeping, this sort of thing. And a a majority of those employees in the top uh, 15 AI exposed jobs were women, 71% of all employees, that is. So women are underrepresented in tech jobs, but are more uh, represented in these sort of support roles, which have high overlap with AI. Uh, Racial differences uh, were present, but not as pronounced. So, I mean, AI has some... Interesting
1: implications for our workforce. Definitely could offset some of the gains that have happened since uh COVID. But I, I I'm glad you gave Ben a shout out. He's actually a friend and another uh, company who's doing a lot of really cool research that they publish freely out there. And so love what yeah. Revelio Labs is doing. It's really cool. Their newsletter is
2: is fantastic. Every 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 few weeks they they publish a lot of great a lot of great stuff. I, I it did occur to me that the yeah I think that that is unfortunate. Uh, I think it is going to be a challenge, particularly in the short term.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the and the article points out that the you know the way around this is reskilling, and for those roles to adapt and to move into different spaces, et cetera, Which I, I think ultimately you will see, and you, you've seen this in other cases in history when things, certain roles and certain types of work become become automated. What I'm most excited about uh, with these generative models is the opportunity for for training, for education, for building skills. The idea that you could have a personal tutor to teach you a particular topic, to teach you a new skill, to speed up a lot of that, and understand what your weaknesses are, et cetera. And, and hopefully some of that application will speed up that move and mitigate some
0: of some of that downside that is so true. Like the AI for the teaching space is just uh, just a wonderful, wonderful field. Uh, we we covered some article like a few weeks ago, essentially showed that the jobs that are not AI exposed are those sort of like electrician, plumber, these sort of jobs that are largely male dominated. And I don't know, are we all going to be plumbers and electricians in the future? Well, until robots
1: really come yeah. on. Like you, you think the AI is great? Wait until <laughs> you get robots that can do all this sort of stuff. Oh yeah, I've been seeing the kill switch engineer jobs floating around of the people who pull the plug when AI becomes sentient. <laughs> you know, what? so I, I'm training for that job personally. I, honestly, You're training for it. It's in the yeah. Switch? <laughs> Strengthening hit, your finger, pulling it out of the wall as quickly as possible. Take that power power
0: source away. Maybe you will outsource it to some sort of AI, like just like the other people.
1: Well, like, I want to come back to what you're really saying, Scott, about like, you know, these kind of personal coach AIs. I mean, the premise, the whole premise there is that AI is already better than you, and it's going to coach you and teach you how to do all of these things. So if it, if if these AI, you know, I, I see a lot about AI personal assistants, but I'm thinking more of like the AIs that are going to be the personal coaches. That already is under the premise that human beings are worse at everything than AIs are. And I'm like, ah, that's not good. I don't know. I just, I'm not excited about that future.
0: It, it, it's a tool. It's a tool. Just like you don't need to know your like uh, mathematical times tables. You got a calculator and you know, why would you need to memorize these sort of things anymore? Uh,
1: yeah. But then ca- your calculator didn't teach you how to be better at pickleball right after it got done. You know, it just did. <laughs> well, you're saying it's
0: Well, I mean, it's clearly a, a dumber version of AI, but it is AI right? It's using an algorithm to derive these sort of things. I, I think it's a question of,
2: you know, on what time scales these things happen. I think the the, the AI to teach you Pickleball is a little further out, but the AI that can <laughs> uh, the AI that can, you know, understand a particular topic like physics really well and, and teach that to you if that's what you want to move into or uh, you know, some other, some other type of work, uh, marketing, etc. that understands that space really well and can uh, skill you up super quickly a, fo- a focus one that feels like it's you know already here if not a couple of years away
1: yeah well they're gonna have to teach you how to market to AIs because they're gonna be the ones making <laughs> procurement decisions in the future and it's like this, ah, is, circular. this is all terrible it's it, exactly it's circular, it's circular algorithmic <laughs> bias right here this is it that's not the all bias
0: right. at that point it's just circular algorithm
1: exactly that's a singularity that
0: Kurzweil talks about that's a singularity where ai starts teaching ai
1: all right we've done it this is a this is <laughs> how we wrap uh philip it's been really great having you on the podcast man and, and dude yeah. thank you so much for for being a sponsor as well we've been it was fun learning about your product and just uh yeah. getting to talk about it sometimes and seeing the research you guys put out there so thanks for what you're doing um any final words scott from you for philip
0: no, just iterate that Philip, great to meet you. Great insights. Good conversation. Look forward to it in the yeah. future.
2: Yeah. Li- likewise. Keep up the great work. Love love the podcast.
0: Uh, you know, Love all the fascinating
2: discussions you have with people and, and, and the style of it. And uh, so so happy that we were able to support you all. Uh, disappointed that I didn't get any questions about Waffle House today. Oh, I was expecting and pre- preparing... House. Pre- preparing my answer there but uh may- maybe next time we'll get into it
1: philip we, well. we can always come back for a round two you know i mean <laughs> that, that is a possibility
2: you do a quick waffle house looking forward to it uh,
1: uh well i
2: i've actually never been to waffle house so i i but i i want a recommendation for when i do go i i've, I've driven it. past it many times and wondered what 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 wonders lie um beyond those, those <laughs> uh, you were waffling design.
1: about doing a waffle house like yes. this is the most <laughs> meadow waffle experience
0: so so you, you you had a sort of uh existential crisis like passing the waffle house i love this what what's uh what's intriguing about it what, what do you see that uh, you got to do or just like just all the people it's the network analysis so people flock to the waffle house and like you say like what's going on there i need to get in there
2: it's it's that you know people talking about it all the time it's i, I see the sign everywhere and then it's it's the uh it's just the, the the chicken the chicken and waffles like i have to wrap my head around what that what that even is what that means i need to. i don't <laughs> I need, even know if they sell, sell chicken and waffles at it.
1: waffle house but maybe they do cole <laughs> cole yeah. works at waffle house yeah they didn't sell chicken did. and waffles then they oh. may have brought it in recently <laughs> but uh Oh, they don't? A, oh,
2: I thought they had chicken and waffles there. Oh, oh then, no. I'm, then I'm less excited. I feel like if you, you ordered it, you would get it.
1: And I, <laughs> I used to have this memorized. It's like smothered, covered, you know, pasted. Like they have all the different things you can put on a waffle, but they, chicken was not one of those things. Anyway, I think we've officially gone off the rails. <laughs> Philip. It's been amazing having you on the podcast. So you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Philip Arcole from Worklytics. Thank you for joining us today,
0: Philip. Thank you both.
1: As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.